we're back, bitches. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Welcome to Time Traveling Teeth, the weekly podcast where we review every episode of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha, and I've kind of forgotten how to do this. Um, <laughs> it's been so long. Um, and now I've got face to heart stuck in my head. Anyway, different show, different franchise. Yeah. This week on Time Traveling Team, we join the Doctor and his companions as they face off against a somewhat ancient foe in Earthshock. As usual, we'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions, and the villains, and we'll give our thoughts on the story as a whole. And as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, X slash Twitter and Instagram. Or email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. Uh, now, I suppose as always, I shall lead <laughs> us into the story recap. You shall But indeed. before that, uh, while we were on break... Shuri Gatwa had his very first story as the Doctor for the Christmas special. And we haven't gone hugely into it on his discussion uh, because obviously we want to wait until we get there to that time. But I was impressed. I think he's going to do well. I think he did really well. Like Obviously, we talked a little bit about Shuri when we were doing our Q&A for 2023 mm-hmm. because he was in the end of the giggle. Yes. Um. But I think he did really, really well. Um, you know, a controversial statement in some quarters. I quite liked the musical number. Yeah, no, I, I thought, thought it was, it was fabulous. That was good. Um, people who are saying like, "Oh my god, it can't be did." They had the doctor singing. That's so like out of character. I'm like, mm, is it though? Is it though? No, I don't think so. The first Doctor sang to himself and made a terrible noise. Um, the Venusian lullaby that Pertwee used to sing. Mm-hmm. Also singing I Do Love to Be Beside the Seaside, etc. I think it was great. I'm really looking forward to it. It open, it, it asks so many questions and gives zero answers <laughs> in a very Russell T. Davies kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a very interesting season. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, he's he's got the right level of charisma, swagger, and emotional um oh there's a word I won't say dissonance or anything that's not the right word. But he he he, he has some very good emotional moments in it. So, emotional resonance, yeah. is that the word you're looking for? Possibly, yes, that is it. Uh but yeah. No no no. So yeah, we look here's looking forward to May. Yeah. Well, no. I will say that before we move no. on, just before you jump in straight away. Um I do <laughs> I do um wonder how uh the original framing element for Ruby sat with international audiences who didn't have a clue who Davina McCall is. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people are like, who the, who the fuck is Davina McCall? Because <laughs> like, the fact that she, she's like, Merry Christmas, Davina McCall. I was just like, okay, what did Davina do to get like this like whole focus on her? Um, but I do wonder if people were like, well, like that's who a- is she? She meant to be a character we know. And I'm like, no, she's a real person. <laughs> but that's actually going to be a thing now as we kind of go through the John Nathan Turner era is that like he was all about like, you know, 
getting these big name guest stars, like but big name in terms of big in the UK type thing, you know? Mm. And like outside of the like outside the UK people be like, Who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Uh, but yeah but, but that for us is a very long long ways away yes so i think you should take us through earth shock first i will indeed part one on the slopes of a quarry a group of armed soldiers from a search and rescue mission set up scanning equipment at the entrance of a cavern to locate some of the missing members of a research expedition the commander of the soldiers lieutenant scott says that the scanners which can only detect mammalian life forms don't appear to be getting any readings from the caverns Professor Kyle, the head of the expedition's research unit, says that the missing people must be dead as there's nothing in the caverns that could potentially block the scanners. Scott agrees but orders his men to continue scanning so that they could at least find the bodies. Sergeant Mitchell, Scott's second-in-command, asks what the purpose of the research expedition was and Kyle says that her team discovered a rich source of fossils in a hidden cave in the cavern system. The scans continue to be negative and Scott orders his men to get ready to go into the cavern to continue the search. Before they go in, Scott and Mitchell discuss the veracity of Kyle's story that the rest of the team went missing and agreed to keep an eye on her. As the search party makes its way through the caves, they fail to notice that they are being followed by hidden figures. As they make their way through the caves, Kyle says that the expedition has experienced numerous setbacks, with pieces of equipment going missing or being vandalised. Back at the entrance, the mysterious figures are detected spasmodically on the scanners, but Walters, the trooper in charge, says that it is just a fault in the antiquated machinery. Meanwhile, on the TARDIS, the Doctor goes to visit Adric in his room to discuss the copy of the Black Orchid that he was given by Lady Cranley. Adric says he has no interest in it, and says that he is fed up with being cheesed by Nyssa and Tegan, and of being ignored by the Doctor. The Doctor promises to try and make more time for him, but Adric says that his promises aren't worth much, using Tegan's presence on the ship as an example. The Doctor takes offence to this, and Adric continues, saying that the Doctor can't take criticism and expresses his desire to go back to his own people. The Doctor angrily storms back to the console room, telling him that it is impossible and too dangerous. This agrees with the Doctor when he explains Adric's request, but Adric says that he can safely plot a course back to eSpace for the TARDIS. The Doctor says that Adric doesn't have the skill level he thinks he does, and refuses to assist him in any way. Adric just says he needs to be able to plot a course, and then he can make his own way there. Back in the caves, the guiding lights suddenly go out and one of the soldiers falls and injures their shoulder. Scott radios back to Walters to prepare for the soldier's return for treatment, but suddenly a mysterious sound fills the cave. Kyle says that the same sound occurred just before the others went missing. Unbeknownst to them, the mysterious figures start to approach them, but they are driven away as the TARDIS materialises. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor and Adric reveal that they have landed on Earth in the 26th century. Tegan and Nissa try to get the Doctor and Adric to patch things up, but the Doctor says that he wants to go outside for a walk. Adric says that since he's regenerated, the Doctor has become decidedly more immature, causing the Doctor to storm off. Tegan goes after him, whilst Nissa goes to speak with Adric, who says that he didn't mean to be rude. Nissa says that maybe once the Doctor has calmed down, he might be willing to help Adric if he proves he can pilot a course safe back to eSpace. She goes outside to join Tegan, who has managed to calm the Doctor down, and he says he will make amends with Adric, and agrees to look at his course back to eSpace. Unbeknownst to them, their presence is picked up on the scanners by Walters and he reports to Scott, who is told that the scans indicate one of them is an alien. Scott orders the patrol to prepare their weapons and then they head towards the doctor's location. One of the guards with Walters notices the wounded soldier and their escort hasn't moved very far to, to the entrance and so they go to see if they need help, with Walters saying that he will advise of their approach. Back in the caves, 
Tegan notices that it isn't as dark as it should be, and the Doctor and Nissa point out the phosphorin-coated fossils embedded in the wall. The Doctor tells Nissa the history of the dinosaurs and their extinction when an asteroid collided with Earth and created the Ice Age. Meanwhile, Walters tells the guard who went to retrieve the wounded party that the scanner is flaring again and he can't get a lock on their positions. Suddenly, the wounded party and the guard's readings vanish from the scanners and Walters tries to contact him, but to no avail. Walters contacts Scott and tells him what happened, saying that they are dead. Mitchell offers to take some men to go back and look for them and Scott agrees before leading the rest of the group on towards the doctor's location. Mitchell's group soon arrives at the place that the guard was last located and they accidentally step into their melted remains. Suddenly, the mysterious figures, who are sleek, dark, featureless humanoids, appear and Mitchell demands to know who they are. Walters then watches helplessly as Mitchell's group also disappears from the scanner, listening to their screams of terror. Meanwhile, the Doctor leads Nyssa and Tegan into the chamber where Kyle's team were attacked and they find themselves surrounded by Scott's group. The Doctor tries to introduce himself and the others, but Scott tells him to shut up. Walters then calls Scott and tells him what happened to Mitchell's group. Walters says that the attacker's life signs don't show up in the scanners, but Scott orders him to keep trying to find a way to locate them. The Doctor asks if he can help, but Scott throws him to the ground and demands a gunpoint to know where the bodies of Kyle's expedition are. Nissa and Tegan say they didn't do anything and offer to show him the TARDIS as proof of their innocence, but they're interrupted by Kyle, who says that the bodies must be hidden under a nearby rockfall. Scott forces Nissa and Tegan to remove the rocks, and they reveal a hatchway built into the wall. Scott demands to know where it leads to, but the Doctor says that he doesn't know. Scott orders the Doctor to open it, but they are interrupted by the arrival of the mysterious figures who engage Scott's men in a firefight. The Doctor reveals that they are actually androids and says that that is why they couldn't be detected on the scanners. The Doctor wonders who is controlling them and what their purpose is. Unbeknownst to him, the androids are actually being controlled by the Cybermen. Part 2 Kyle, recognising the sound of the androids' weapons, says that it was them that attacked her group. Scott says that his group's weapons are ineffective against the androids, but the Doctor tells them to concentrate their fire on one at a time. They manage to damage one of the androids, forcing it and the other to retreat due to their self-preservation programming. The Doctor says that they will most likely attack again, and Kyle asks why. The Doctor asks if Kyle's team had been working near the rockfall, and when she confirms it, he says that they may be defending the hidden hatch. He says that they need to find out what is inside, but they suddenly hear Adric approaching. Adric calls out for the Doctor, but hides when he notices the androids moving nearby. Scott says that the power packs on his men's weapons are running low, and the Doctor and Nissa say that they can use the androids' logic programming against them. They tell Scott and the others that if they attack the hatch, the androids will be forced into a conflict between their logic and their self-preservation programming, which could cause them to make mistakes. The plan works, and the androids are stopped by their indecision allowing Adric to smash one of them in the head with a rock before it and the other one are destroyed by the fire from Scott's men. In their hidden base, the Cybermen observe the destruction of the androids, and the Cyber leader says that they have no choice but to activate something they refer to as the device. The device is revealed to be a Cyberbomb, which the Doctor inadvertently triggers his countdown clock when he opens the hatchway. He says that he doesn't know how long they have left, and he tells Tegan to get everyone into the TARDIS, whilst he stays behind to try and disarm it. Adric says that he can't risk his life, but the Doctor begins to say that he has no choice, but gets a brainwave and ushers Adric back inside the TARDIS. Inside, he says he can block the countdown signal if he knows where it is coming from. He manages to locate and block the signal, but tells Adric that they still need to disarm the bomb, as whoever armed it could boost the signal strength, which is just what the Cybermen begin to do. The signal starts to break through again as the Doctor continues to disarm the bomb, 
forcing him to take a gamble as to which circuit to cut. His gamble pays off and he manages to deactivate the bomb before asking Adric why he thinks the bomb was there in the first place. Adric says it isn't their concern as he heads back to the TARDIS, but the Doctor doesn't agree. The Cybermen rewatch the events leading up to the android's destruction via their optical recorders to see how the bomb would have been deactivated, given that humanity's technology was far more primitive than their own. The cyber leader spots the TARDIS in the recording and says he recognises it. He pulls up archival recordings of the TARDIS as well as the various times that the Doctor has stopped the Cybermen in the past. The cyber leader says that they must find the Doctor and destroy him. Meanwhile, in the TARDIS, the Doctor says goodbye to Scott and Kyle, seeing that he intends to go to the origin of the signal controlling the androids so he can question their creators. Scott and Kyle insist on going as well, seeing that they want to know if there will be another potential threat to Earth. The Doctor reluctantly agrees and pilots the TARDIS away. Tegan and Nyssa take Scott, Kyle and his men to the kitchen, but as Andrew goes to follow them, the Doctor calls him back for a private conversation. The Doctor thanks him for all his help in the caves and says that if they can plot a safe course back to E-Space, then he will bring Adric there. Adric shows him the course that he has already plotted, and they both apologise for their behaviour towards each other. The Doctor asks if Adric really wants to go home, and Adric says that he doesn't, and they joke about Adric doing all his calculations in case he changes his mind again. In their hidden base, the Cybermen report that they have tracked the TARDIS to a freighter somewhere in deep space. The Cyber leader says that that is excellent, and their plan to attack Earth can proceed. On the freighter, two officers, Ringway and Berger, are discussing the disappearance of several crew members as well as the absence of their captain. Berger tells them not to worry, but Ringway replies that if any of their crew lodge a formal complaint, then they could be detained at a space station that they are currently docked at, pending an official inquiry. Berger says the crew won't say anything so as not to affect their delivery bonus. Suddenly, an announcement comes over the PA system saying that the captain, Briggs, is returning to the ship. Brig comes to the bridge and informs Ringway and Berger that they have been given express clearance all the way to Earth, which is on red alert due to an intergalactic conference being held there. Ringway asks if the missing crew were mentioned, and Briggs says that they weren't before ordering an immediate departure. At that moment, the TARDIS lands in the cargo hold of the freighter, and the Doctor and Adric go to take a look around. After several minutes, Adric says that there doesn't appear to be anyone around, and the Doctor says that the freighter must have at least a skeleton crew to guide it. Meanwhile, the cyber leader receives a call from an unknown voice that says the disappearance of the crew members has been commented upon. The cyber leader tells the voice to send men to search the cargo hold of the freighter, where they will find the doctor for use as a scapegoat. Back on the freighter, Ringway contacts the security team that is currently patrolling the cargo hold, saying that they saw someone moving around down there. He tells them to continue searching and he will join them. At the same time, Berger spots the Doctor and Adric on the security monitors and informs Briggs of their presence. In the cargo hold, the Doctor and Adric hear screams from nearby and go to investigate just as an alarm starts to go off. They find the bodies of the security team, and the Doctor says that he has seen wounds like that before. Adric says that they should leave before they are caught and blamed, but before they can go, they are caught by Ringway. Part 3 The Doctor says that they didn't kill the guards, showing Ringway the wounds on their bodies, but Ringway ignores him. He calls the bridge and informs them of what happened, and Briggs orders him to bring the Doctor and Adric to the bridge. As they are being led away, they are being watched by the Cybermen through their own surveillance equipment. The Cyber Leader says the Doctor must be punished for his previous victories against them. The Cyber Leader orders his personal guard to be activated so that he can go to claim the freighter. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Adric continue to protest their innocence to Ringway, but he continues to ignore them as he brings them to the bridge. 
Once there, they try to get Briggs to listen to them, but they're interrupted by a sudden power surge that affects the ship's systems. The power surge is detected by Nyssa on the TARDIS, who tries to locate the source. Scott and Kyle say they should go out and see if the Doctor needs help, but Nyssa says they can't do anything until they know what's going on. Back on the bridge, the Doctor tells Briggs about their encounter with the androids in the caves and the bomb which he is sceptical of their claims. Burgess says that the power surge is increasing and the loss to the ship's own power is enormous. She manages to locate its source and Briggs orders the technical team to go and investigate. The Doctor suggests cutting power altogether, saying that it is the only way to stop whoever is targeting the freighter. Burgess says they need to drop out of warp speed to avoid engines misfiring, but Briggs refuses, saying that she doesn't want her delivery bonus impacted. Burgess tells the confused Doctor and Adric about the conference on Earth, and that any ship suddenly deviating from its recognised flight path will cause it to be stopped in search. The Doctor again implores Briggs to believe him, and says that by going to Earth they are only helping their unseen adversary. Briggs orders Ringway to place armed guards outside the cargo hold and orders Berger, who is taking the Doctor's side, to continue on their course. Back at the Cyberman base, the Cyber Leader is informed that the freighter crew will have detected the energy drain. The Cyber Leader orders the activation of more troops whilst he takes his personal guard to attack the bridge. On the TARDIS, Nissus says that the power surge is stabilised and Scott says that he will take his men in search for the Doctor. Tegan says that she will go with him and swaps clothes with Kyle. Scott gives Nyssa a communicator to call them back in case the Doctor returns. Back on the bridge, the feed of the security monitors goes out and Briggs tells Ringway to prepare his men for an attack. The power stabilises and Briggs orders Berger to continue to art. Suddenly, they see a squad of Cybermen making their way through the cargo hold. The Cybermen reach the exit of the hold, which has been barricaded, but they easily smash through it as Ringway's men fire at them ineffectually. The Doctor tells Briggs to pull them back, but she refuses. The firefight is heard by Scott's group, and he orders his men to set their weapons to kill. On the bridge, Ringway suddenly appears and pulls his gun on everyone, revealing himself to be the traitor. Briggs asks how much he was paid, and the doctor remarks that it couldn't be in gold due to the Cybermen's aversion to it. He then tries to distract Ringway with tales of his victories against the Cybermen, so Adric can remove his mathematical excellent badge, which is made of gold. However, Ringway catches him and takes the badge from him. They all then notice that the firefight has stopped and Ringway notices that Berger has gone missing. He looks around for her and Briggs and the Doctor disarm him and knock him out. Berger, who was hiding behind the, her control console, seals off the bridge to prevent the Cybermen from getting in. Briggs says their security force should be able to handle them, highlighting the small number of Cybermen, but the Doctor says that they are part of a larger invasion force. Adric notices the cargo manifest and asks how many silo units the freighter is carrying. And now horrified Briggs says that there are over 15,000. The Doctor asks if there is a way to jettison the cargo hold, but she says it's impossible. Down in the cargo hold, Scott and Tegan's group come across the remains of the barricade massacre, but quickly hide when they see two Cybermen patrolling the area. Scott says they are going to be difficult to deal with, highlighting to a confused Tegan the lack of Cybermen bodies amongst the corpses at the barricade. Scott orders his men to concentrate their fire on the Cybermen, and they manage to knock one down. Tegan dashes forward to retrieve one of the Cybermen's weapons and uses it to finish it off. However, the water-wounded Cybermen manages to escape. Back in the bridge, Adric points out that the Cybermen are attempting to break in using a thermal lance. The Doctor asks if the ship is powered by antimatter, and when Berger says that it is, he asks for help tapping into the stability field that keeps the antimatter secure in order to try and reinforce the force field at the door. 
Briggs says that the thermal lance is almost cut through the door, and suddenly a Cyberman begins to tear his way through it. The Doctor dashes forward with a piece of cable and forces it into the Cyberman's hands. The Cyberman instantly solidifies into the door, completely sealing it off again. The Cyber Leader then orders demolition charges to be prepared at the other door to the bridge. Suddenly, the wounded Cyberman from the cargo hold appears, and the Cyber Leader orders more units to be activated to deal with whoever is in the cargo hold. He then orders the charges to be set off and they destroy the door, blowing the Doctor and Adric to their feet. Ringway gets up and disarms Briggs as the Cybermen enter. The Cyber Leader then orders Ringway to be killed for his perceived betrayal of them, and he then addresses the Doctor. He says that they will destroy Earth before killing the Doctor so that he can witness the end of the planet he loves. The Cyber Leader then indicates the security monitors as hundreds of Cybermen begin to emerge from the silo pods in the cargo hold. Part 4 the Doctor and the others watch as the Cybermen attach a device to the navigational console, which the Doctor says is meant to lock them out from redirecting the freighter away from Earth. Briggs says that the Earth's defence forces will blow the freighter up if they believe it to be a threat. The Cyber Leader says that the security clearance that they have been granted would give enough time before the defence forces could react. Adric asks why they want to destroy the planet, saying that it would be useless to the Cybermen afterwards. The Cyber Leader reveals that the conference currently taking place there is actually a gathering of dignitaries from many planets to set a military alliance pact against the Cybermen. The Cyber Leader says that the Cybermen would not win a war against such an alliance, and so by destroying the planet, the alliance would never come to be. The Doctor says that the Cyber Leader will die as well, but he replies that he won't be on board as he will join the rest of the invasion force to clean up any survivors from the explosion. Meanwhile, Tegan becomes separated from Scott and his men and is captured by the Cybermen. She is taken to the bridge and the Cyber Leader notices the Doctor's concern for her. The Doctor tries to downplay his concern for her whilst debating with the Cyber Leader about the importance of emotions. The Cyber Leader calls the Doctor's bluff by ordering Tegan to be killed but rescinds the order when the Doctor begs him to stop. The Cyber Leader then says that he will have Tegan killed the next time the Doctor disobeys him. He then orders the Doctor to use the TARDIS to orbit the Earth so he can witness its destruction. Down in the cargo hold, Scott and the others make it back to the TARDIS, but they are attacked by a pair of Cybermen who manage to break inside. In the ensuing firefight, both of the Cybermen are killed, but so was Kyle. Scott says that they can now use the Cybermen's superior weapons to try and free the others. This says that they can risk throwing their lives away, but Scott says that he has no choice. The Cyber Leader leaves a pair of guards to keep an eye on the Doctor and the others so that they don't try to interfere with the navigational lock. Briggs asks why they don't just don't kill the prisoners now, and the Cyber Leader says that he wants the guards to record their fear, which he says is the ultimate emotional response. Tegan calls him sadistic, and the Cyber Leader says that he will take her with him in order to ensure the Doctor's cooperation. The Doctor asks Radrick to be brought as well, seeing that he needs his help to fight the TARDIS, but the Cyber Leader says he knows that he is lying. Adric says that he will be fine and that he will find a way off the ship. Tegan objects as the Doctor reluctantly agrees. He shakes hands with Adric, who promises to see them all again soon. After they leave, Adric says they need to deactivate the navigational lock so they can divert the freighter from its course, but Briggs says that he will need to deal with the guards first. Moments later, Scott and one of his men entered the bridge and destroyed the two guards. Back at the TARDIS, Nissa is happy to see the Doctor and Tegan, but her joy is short-lived when she sees the Cybermen with them. The Cyber Leader orders the Doctor to follow the freighter as it continues towards Earth. Tegan says that Earth's defences will detect the TARDIS when it arrives, but the Cyber Leader says it is too small and nothing can stop their victory. Back on the freighter, 
Adric says that the only way to remove the navigational lock is to solve a trio of logic codes that the Cybermen set up. They hear gunfire from nearby, and Scott goes to check on it. He sees one of his men holding off a squad of Cybermen, and he begins to set up a barricade outside the bridge. He and his men, along with Briggs, hold off the Cybermen whilst Adric and Berger work on the logic codes. They manage to unlock one, and Berger goes to see what they can access. Suddenly, the freighter lurches as it accidentally reverses its warp trajectory and begins travelling backwards through time. This is noticed on the TARDIS, and the cyber leader orders the Doctor to pursue it so they can land on it again and set it back on its proper course. The Doctor says that he can't, as the freighter's coordinates are constantly changing due to its reversing chronal trajectory. Tegan says that Earth is now safe, but the Doctor says the freighter will still hit Earth, just at a different point in time. The Cyber Leader gloats in this as it will mean Earth will not have been around to ever resist the Cybermen. Suddenly the freighter comes out of warp speed just as Adric unlocks the second logic code. Briggs says that there is nothing more that can be done and ushers Adric and the others towards an escape pod. However, Adric refuses to leave, adamant that he can crack the last code and save Earth. Scott pulls him into the pod, but just as the door closes, he jumps out again as he is figuring out the next code sequence. On the TARDIS, the Doctor and the others watch as the pod leaves, but the Cyber Leader says it is just his remaining troops leaving. The Doctor then points out that they have travelled back about 65 million years into Earth's past. Tegan says that she doesn't care, but Nissa reminds her of their earlier conversation about the fate of the dinosaurs. Tegan realises that the freighter was the object that collided with Earth, and the Doctor tells the Cyber Leader that his plan has failed. Just then, a message comes in from Scott and tells them of their escape from the freighter, but says that Adric stayed behind. The cyber leader goes to shoot the doctor, but Tegan grapples him, distracting him long enough for the doctor to rush forward and crush Adric's badge, which he had slipped to him when they shook hands earlier, into the cyber leader's chest unit. The gold residue causes the cyber leader to begin choking, and he fires wildly all about him. The doctor takes the gun off him and kills him with it. Nissa and Tegan urge the doctor to hurry, but he says that the console was damaged by the cyber leader's gunfire. The cyber leader's remaining bodyguard, who had been sent to search through the TARDIS, returns and Nissa kills him whilst the doctor works on fixing the console. Back on the freighter, Adric works to insert the last code, but suddenly a wounded Cyberman appears and blows up the navigational console before succumbing to its wounds, laughing as it dies. Adric despondently says that he will never know if he was right, and he watches as the freighter carries on towards Earth. The doctor and Nissa and Tegan also watch in horror as the freighter collides with Earth and explodes. Nissa consoles a grieving Tegan as the Doctor forlornly looks at the remains of Adric's badge on the floor. End of the story. So, now that we've had time, like I don't know if we've had enough time to fucking deal with that ending, uh, we'll go to the trivia spot. Because, like, we will we will have our thoughts about Adric next week, but one thing that I think we can't um, disavow is that it's a very impactful ending sequence. <laughs> yes. yes, I I, I realise impactful is the wrong word to use in this fucking context. Oh, yeah. anyway, let's yes. jump into trivia. Mm-hmm. So the air date of the story is the 8th to the 16th of March, 1982. I'm still not used to this whole two-a-week thing, so my brain mm. just keeps going weird whenever I see really short air dates, but however. 
The writer was Eric Soward. This is story two for Eric. We previously saw his work in The Visitation and we'll see his work again in, in Resurrection of the Daleks, A Fix with Suntarans, and Revelation of the Darks. What the hell is A Fix with Suntarans? It's the Jimmy Savile story that we're not... It's Oh, the, we're not doing that. Yeah, okay, yeah we're not doing that. <laughs> this is what I get when I just copy and paste and don't read the notes ahead of time. But like, this, is, this is the thing is that like... You, this is like the third time the Jim and Fix It thing has come up, and like each time you ask, "What is that one again?" It's like, it's like the minute I say it's Jimmy Savile, it's like you automatically banish it from your brain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, just, just for just, just for our listeners, yeah. it's not a canonical story. Despicable fucking person that he was, Jimmy Savile had a show called Jim and Fix It, where he would give people an opportunity to. Uh, live out, live out a desire. One of them was a child wanted to be on an episode of Doctor Who, so they wrote Eric Sword and Colin Baker did a short sketch where the child was a companion for the Doctor. Yeah, yeah. And that's the last we shall mention Jimmy Savile until the next time Trish forgets. Yeah, uh, until, until, until we get to Resurrection of the Daleks, at which point you'll forget again. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. The director of the story is Peter Grimwade, fourth and final directing credit here for Peter. We previously saw his work in Full Circle, Legopolis, and Kinda. This story had a working title of Sentinel, which I can see. I can guess. Um, this is the first Cyberman story that neither of the creators, Kit Peddler or Jerry Davis, had any involvement with. It's completely original from their original creators. Um, so. Sorry to interrupt there. Just before you go on, I just pegged that Peter Grimwade directed Adric's first story and his last story. Oh, so he did. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. This story does have the very rare occasion, um, which again somehow came up in conversation recently on like Facebook, but um, where the Doctor not only uses a weapon but also kills with it, or at least makes a very valiant effort to kill with it. Ultimately, it's Nissa that kills it, but whatever. Um, not something the Doctor no, does on the regular, no, but he, it he, has happened he, he, in the past. He does kill the Cyber Leader. Nissa kills the second one. Oh, she does, yeah. No, I was... Uh, yeah, no. Yep. Thank you. So, the multiple rows of mastering Cybermen in part four, there's actually a single row that's got duplicated and duplicated over and over and over again. Um, one of the android costumes would later be repainted silver and use a costume for the rest of Warrior and the Five Doctors. While his overall opinion of the story was quite positive, despite its notoriously unforgiving shooting schedule, apparently, uh, Peter Grimwade absolutely hated the incidental score that was put together by Malcolm Clark, and he tried to get Peter Howell, who he'd worked with on Kinda, to do it, um, but Howell wasn't available. Um, so the story ended up keeping Clark's score. At one point in the story, Janet Fielding let out an unscripted scream. It was during the scene in part four when the dying cyber leader shoots the TARDIS console. Uh, the reason for this, it wasn't scripted, Tegan wasn't meant to scream, is because a stray spark landed in her hair. And it obviously startled her. Um but obviously, it's to do with the TARDIS being shot at, mm. so they couldn't do another take. So Janet's scream just stayed yeah. in. Uh, the cyberscope prop was built using parts the model maker had scavenged from the Nostromo set. 
constructed for aliens. Oh. Similarly, the digital readouts on the devices flash up a random series of numbers, which were also seen on the monitors of the Nostromo set. Nice. That is not the first connection to Alien, though. Captain Briggs, right, was originally written as a Sigourney Weaver type in the script. And everyone was really baffled (laughs) by John Nathan Turner's decision to cast Beryl Reed in the role. (laughs) They all agreed that Reed did a good job, um, Mm. but her character did not match what was in the script, like, at all. Um, She also really struggled with the dialogue. Um, She asked during recording if Warp Drive was off Earl's Court. (laughs) And she later called it a strange... (laughs) 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 And she later called it a strange experience. We'll obviously talk more about Captain Briggs and about uh, Reed's performance later on. Mm. Uh, Eric Sarward considered having the cyber leader survive the story, actually. Providing yet another sign of the fifth Doctor's fallibility in comparison to his predecessors, but ultimately decided against it. Jonathan Turner took a now well-known publicity gamble with this serial by deciding that he wanted to keep the return of the Cybermen a surprise. So not only was Cybermen not in the title, mm-hmm. um, but normally there would have been a public gallery overlooking the studio floor, a television centre, so the public could look at what they were doing. And for Earthshock, he had this area closed for the duration and security kept people out. He also turned down a Radio Times photo shoot to mark the start of the story to ensure the secret did not leak out. So a lot of times Radio Times would do on set photo shoots. He did not do one for this story. The death of Adric is also like a considerable gamble um, since no long-running companion um, was ever killed on the show. Their, their long-running ca- companions were never killed off before. Um, the whole ending of it was interesting because there is no theme music. No. Um, we have a really sort of downbeat background music while you know everyone in the tires realizes what happens, and then it, the camera pans to the remnants of Adric's badge on the floor, and the credits run over total silence. Yeah. It's very, very similar to the end of the final episode of Blake 7. Normally that there would have been music over it, but for that show, given what happened in it, yeah, it's just credits, silence. Yeah. Matthew Waterhouse was initially appalled at the decision to kill Adric off. And he refused to speak to Jonathan Turner for two weeks. Part of the reason why he was so upset was because if you kill him off, he can never come back. Because he did. So, whatever. Um, but he was eventually mollified when Jonathan Turner basically said like the Doctor could still encounter Adric at a prior time. I disagree with that assessment. Because the episode itself sort of suggests that that could never happen. But, whatever. Um, Matthew Waterhouse did recall that his last day on set was very sad. He was filled with champagne, put in a taxi and sent home. At that point, he burst into tears. That is really sad. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the rest of our cast, though. 
So as Lieutenant mm-hmm. Scott, we have James Warwick. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. His non-Who credits include Murder, She Wrote, The O'Neill Line. He did some voices for the Iron Man cartoon. And he also voiced Qui-Gon Jinn in a number of Star Wars video games. Hmm. He's probably best known, though, for playing Tommy Bursford in Agatha Christie's Partners in Crime. Professor Kyle is played by Claire Clifford. Uh, only Doctor Who acting credit, but she does appear in Torchwood in the story fragments. Her non-Who credits include Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day, Miss Potter, Doctors, and The Bill. Captain Briggs, like I said, is played by Beryl Reed. Only Doctor Who credit for Beryl. Non-Who credits include The Killing of Sister George, Yellowbeard, Smiley's People, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Beryl passed away in 1996. You have a finger up because you want my attention. Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I first saw her, I was like, is that who I think it is? And she, I love the movie Yellowbeard. It's not a cr- great critically acclaimed movie. It's a movie that has a lot of the guys from Monty Python in it. Uh, it's a pirate movie. But b- her character basically at one point goes stop that man from pissing on the hedge it's important and she chases him off with a broom and all i could think of was every time she spoke was like stop that man from pissing on the edge (laughs) (laughs) uh berger is played by june bland the first of two doctor who credits for june we will see her again in battlefield her non-who credits include the newcomers battle to hell the doctors and angels Ringway is played by Alec Sabin. This is only Doctor Who acting credit for Alec. His non-Who credits include Coronation Street, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Anthony and Cleopatra, Birds of a Feather, and Silent Witness. I think Birds of a Feather was a great program. I'd never watched it, but I, it was constantly... Did you not? Oh, it was very good. Very yeah. good. All I can really remember is getting... They did the... Was it the Daz ads? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh, the birds of a feather are good. Yeah. Um, lastly, the leader of the Cybermen, the Cyber Leader, or the leader of the bad guys, as Paddy put it to me when he was originally giving the list of characters that I was going to have to be looking up, mm-hmm. is played by David Banks. This is the first of five on screen stories for David. We'll see him again. I said five, I only see four listed. First of four, maybe. Uh, we'll see him again in The Five Doctors, Attack of the Cybermen, and Silver Nemesis. He has also done a number of audio stories for Doctor Who. And his non-who credits include Brookside, Canary Wharf, and EastEnders. Thus endeth the trivia. So, getting back into the swing of things. Summary, done. Trivia, done. Next we have character discussion. So, Mm -hmm. we have the Doctor... We have the companions of Adric, Tegan, and Nyssa. I would have put a lot of, like, Scott, Kyle, and them. I put them all in prominent characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you? Yeah, I did. Um, then for villains, we do have Ringway, who's like a traitor. So yeah, I put him as a villain. Um, and then the Cybermen themselves. Or as Paddy put it, the bad guys. Yeah, because I couldn't remember whether or not you knew who they were, who was going to be, and yeah. I don't like spoiling stuff for you. Yeah. Ever ever so, since ever since the infamous incident of um, Web of Fear. 
Okay, let's get started with the doctor. So, Paddy, the sentence failed me. The way we do this is whoever reads out the socials is the one who goes first. After years of, do you want to go first? Will I go first? Who went last week? Yeah. So, Paddy, you did socials. You go first. Thoughts on the doctor, Pliz and Plinko. He is such a fucking child. Like, <laughs> s- seriously. Act your age. Like, I, I do. <laughs> I I have to fucking say it. Like, and it's... And watching this story, it... This is, I believe, the third time I've seen this story, okay? Mm. It was the first Peter Davison story I ever saw. And I watched it as part of a top pick for each Doctor Weekend way back when. Mm. And so I was like, okay, that was the first time I watched it. Then I watched it again on my initial run-through. And this is my third time watching it. And each time, it's like, I don't particularly like Peter Davison's Doctor thus far. Mm. Because you honestly never know what you're going to get. Like, I really enjoyed him in Castrovalva. Really did. Then we had, from Four to Doomsday onwards, it's this... I don't think bipolar is the correct terminology, but it's just like he's a prick. He's not. It's you don't know what you're going to get. And it always seems to be it was for a while it was aimed at Tegan, then and then it became aimed at Adric. And it's like, what the fuck is your problem? Like really, mm. it it's getting on my it's is getting on my fucking wick. Because I don't mind the doctor being alien for a moment and uh, we've had we've had discussions about particularly tom i think it came up an awful lot in tom's run you mm. know where those moments where he was like aloof or he was nasty or something like that and we discussed it and i'm like i don't mind that once in a while but like even hartnell during his fucking grumpy phase it's like, okay, yes, we know he's designed to be grumpy. That's who he is. But here we're meant to have like this thing of he's meant to be again more advanced, more mature. And as Adric said, like since he's actually regenerated, he's become a lot more immature. Mm. And but there's no rationale behind it. So it makes it very hard to connect. Um what I will say though is like once the main plot kind of kicked off. And once he pulled his head out of his ass, like it was nice seeing his old rapport with Adric again. Um, it was I liked his Tegan is now one of his. Like he, she's no longer a burden. She is like a friend, a companion. Um, I didn't quite buy into his interactions with the cyber leader until the very end um it, it just it just didn't particularly hit for me um so yeah like i'm i have thoughts about the story in general like uh but on on the doctor side of things i'm not very gone on the doctor in the story 
Yeah, I would say my first reaction to the doctor in this story when he's talking to Adric was, oh my god, you are such an asshole. Like, such an asshole. Hmm. This is a kid, right? So I think canonically he's like, what, 17 at this point, maybe? 16 or 17? Uh, I think he, no, he was meant to be 15 when it started. And we have no idea how, what the timey-wimey nature of this whole thing. So, but like, we'll give him a year. We'll say that he's, was it 16 going on 17? Yeah. He's a kid. He's a fucking kid. And he's upset because he keeps being picked on and whatever, partially by the doctor in previous stories. And as opposed to comforting him or helping him feel more at ease or whatever, your first response is, everyone gets picked on sometimes. Hey, like, fucking seven-year-old man, you're the one making fun of a child. Like, come on. But also, like, the way he reacts to Adric wanting to go home is so... It's such an asshole move because, you know, we've seen doctors upset when people want to go home. Like, you know, the first doctor... Losing it at Ian and Barbara, being like, "What the hell do you think you're doing? You're gonna scatter your fucking selves across the cosmos." Mm. You don't know what you're doing, but that was out of fear for their safety. Like, what happened if something went wrong? If someone wanted to leave, the doctor has never, like, genuinely been like, "No, fuck off! I'm not doing that." This is a 16 year old boy who feels that the friend he had fucking disappeared. He regenerated into someone new who doesn't give a fucking shit about him. He has Nyssa, who he feels has kind of replaced him as the protege. And that's not Nyssa's fault. But, like, imagine you're putting something to choose for a 16-year-old boy. That's clearly the way he sees it. He's not appreciated. He doesn't feel like he belongs here. And so he wants to go home. Only to be told by the person who's responsible for his safety I'm not fucking going back there I'm never going back there I'm never going to try and go back there and whatever like Adric made a very valid point Romana is still there he could go and be with Romana like the boy doesn't have a fucking home like try to give him one and so his whole reaction to that I thought was completely over the top and no other doctor would ever have reacted that way they would have done all they can to either one, get him home, or two, show him why it can't be done and make him feel like this is home. Do you know? It just, it was so horrendous. And then to cap it all off, he storms out, is like, I'm going for a walk. Fuck you guys. Whatever. Fuck safety and security and all that kind of shit. I'm going for a walk. And the minute the girls talk to him, he calms down. I think way to reinforce Adric's belief that you don't give a shit about him. He asks you for something that he genuinely needs for himself, that he genuinely wants in that moment. And you brush it off, you blow up at him, you yell at him, you scream at him, whatever. Nissa and Tegan come out and they're like, oh, come on, let him try. And you're like, oh, okay. And like, no, stop. Like, he's a child and you're coming across as like this weird, abusive fucking parent. <laughs> like, stop. Oh my God. Um, I agree with you that like, as the story actually picks up, you know, 
it's more of just the doctor being the doctor and blah, blah, blah. But there was a few other things that really struck me. Like, one was when this the cyber leader was, like, saying, like, okay, we're going to shoot Tegan. And he takes a really long time to step in front of her. Yeah, he's he's trying to hold the bluff. That was not an immediate response. No, he's trying to hold the bluff. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck the bluff. Again, if you think back to Genesis of the Daleks, neither turned up that little dial to torture Harry and Sarah once Mm -hmm. for like two seconds. And Tom was like, stop. Stop. Like, Adric and Tegan were stood right there and the doctor was there trying to bluff with a Cyberman. I'm like, no, dude, stop. And then the last thing that got my goat was the fact they left Adric on the freighter at all. I know that, like, in the story, obviously the cyber leader's trying to get them off the ship and whatever, and it's like, oh, I'll kill them, whatever. But the fact that there was no, aha, Uno reverse card, where the doctor suddenly gets the better hand to get Adric off the ship. I know that obviously they wanted to write Adric out of the show, so that's why it didn't happen. But, like, in the context of watching it, I'm like, yeah, just leave him there then. Like, leave the 16 year old kid behind it's fine whatever well, I kind of headcanoned it that <clears throat> when Adric slipped the doctor the star the doctor probably thought that it would just be the cyber leader that would be going into the TARDIS with him and he'd get to jump on him and then he'd be able to t- pilot the TARDIS back into the freighter that's the way that I rationalised it okay maybe maybe I just I just no. All I could think of is that was that like you took on a responsibility for this young man and you have failed in every possible way. You were a really good mentor to him, a really good guide to him, a really good friend to him when you were all teeth and curls. Then you're regenerated into this younger body and apparently you're now having a competition with him. Like grow the fuck up and act your age. Do you know? Like I said everything else, like his interactions with um the supporting cast, that's all that's all fine. Um no major issues there. His interactions with Tegan in this uh I said with the exception of not stepping out faster for Tegan or whatever. That's all fine. That's all grand. But like the the thing that sits with me though with the doctor in the story is oh my god, you're such a fucking asshole. Like we thought at times Patrick Troughton was an asshole. Mm. But I don't think. I think while he maybe did dickish things, like the whole thing with Jamie and like that kind of thing, he was never this much of an asshole to someone's fucking face. But I, I think the other thing is that like it's everything has been so compact, like pretty much it went Castrovalva, and then you had four stories, you had. Fort of Doomsday, The Visitation, Kinda, and The Black Orchid. And it's just this compact thing of, like, in each story, he's <clears throat> an asshole in some capacity to someone, be it, te- yeah. be it mostly Tegan or Adric. Now, what I will say is that Adric didn't make things easy, but at the same time, that's the opportunity for the Doctor to rise above and be 
the role model and be the person that Adric needs to be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like Adric reacted badly to Nyssa and Tegan coming along. He clearly felt out of place, whatever. But that's where he needed a firm supportive hand and he didn't fucking get it. Mm -hmm. Instead, he had the doctor deferring to Nyssa for everything. And Tegan taking control because that's her her way. And Adric just there. Do you know? And like, you know, the thing I always try to remember is that like, he is a 16 year old child. Again, whenever we talk about Adric, we often bring up Wesley Crusher. For a grown ass adult to react the way the doctor does to Adric would maybe be excusable if it was two adults having a juvenile spat. But it's not. It's an adult and a child. He's allowed have emotions. He's allowed get upset. He's 16, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? What 16-year-old hasn't gotten upset or like wanted to rebel or you know, wanted to prove themselves or whatever? Um. So, yeah, I... I can understand the fear people had about a younger actor taking on the role. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I hoped we would get is this sort of old man in a young man's body. Do you know? And that's not what we're getting. And I think part of that is the writing. I do think part of it is the acting as well. But so far, he really has a hill to climb to get back on level pegging with the others. I think. Yeah, um, I think I think it is kind of funny like that. The actor that Matthew had a better relationship with, his doctor treats him. Te- his doctor treats his character terribly, whereas the actor he had a horrible relationship with, his doctor treats him better. Yeah, it's also quite interesting that like. The doctor who was younger and played by an older actor is the one mm. that I personally connected with more rather than the doctor who's played by an actor who at the time would have been closer to my age now. Yeah. And who's playing a more tenured version of the doctor. It's like, mm, yeah. Yeah. Strange how it works. Yeah. Um, let's move on to our companions, though. So we've mm-hmm. taken in Adric. Um, mm-hmm. As usual, I suggest we leave Adric to last, though we have yeah. discussed him a bit in the context of the Doctor already. So would you rather talk about Nyssa or Tegan first? Nyssa, because I don't know if I'm using this phrase correctly, but it feels like after the first episode, she's kind of fridged for the story. Yeah, okay, so fridging specifically refers to Killing off yeah. the female character to drive the plot of um, and the, of, the, of the male to give a male character drive to complete the plot. So I wouldn't say she was fridged. I would mm. say she was benched. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Because like, I was like, oh yeah, like, I know that fridging generally speaks is like shit happening to a female character in order to drive a male protagonist's story. Mm. But um, here it's like. Yeah, she or yeah, she's just boxed. She's just boxed away because after the first episode, she is just in the TARDIS the whole fucking time. And 
in episode one, you know, she's great. Like, she's the emotional bridge between Adric and the Doctor because she can empathize with... On on one hand, she's very like Adric. She's very young. She's very smart. She's an orphan. Mm. And she's kind of relying on, like, this weird adopted family that they they've all become together, you know? Mm. Um and then on the other side of things is that we've kind of seen that she's a bit more tech savvy and emotionally savvy than Adric. So mm. she can kind of translate that to the doctor as well. So she's a good bridge. But once that moment passes we're then into the the mystery element of the story, and you know she's she's a nice exposition dump about you know dinosaurs and the phosphor like you know the fossils and things like that, and then um, one thing I've noticed like is like this whole thing of like in order to kind of prove their innocence, we'll just show them the TARDIS. So I was like, how will that prove your innocence? No, to be fair, like that—that's both her and Tegan using that. And I'm like, if anything, it might incriminate you further. But because um, <laughs> it can just pop up wherever. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, um, but yeah, like then, like she's in the TARDIS the whole time, and she's essentially the um, in this instance the woman in the chair. You know, mm. um, and I really like Nissa. I don't like when that happens. And I think it's just <clears throat> it's further proof that the current batch of writers that we have can't write a four person TARDIS adequately. Yeah. Which is a, yeah, which, I is agree. a sh- which is a shame because I think in this story, given how it ended, I would have I would have much preferred to have Nissa also be on the bridge. So she could say goodbye to Adric. Yeah. Like, I think, I think this season has really struggled with having three really intelligent, like, like super intelligent characters. And then Tegan, who's like base level, right? Yeah. Not that Tegan's a moron by any stretch of the imagination, but she's base she's modern resor- level. She's resourceful. Yeah, but she's a base modern level, modern yeah, yeah. level human. And then you have the Doctor, Nyssa, and Adric. I like Nissa more than the other two at the moment. <laughs> um, I think Sarah Sutton is great. I really do think that, like, out of all the companions we've seen in, in a long time, I think Nissa is really the forgotten companion. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. She's super intelligent. She is. She can take charge. Like, you know, I said. She was boxed in the TARDIS, but she was taking charge in that space. Like, she owns that space. She's comfortable in that space. She'll take charge, even though she's like a dinky little, <laughs> like, little five foot four little thing or whatever. And you've got all these people with guns, and she's just like, no, like, you're in my house now, bitches. My rules. Mm-hmm. Um, which is great. Um, but I do agree that. They didn't give her anything to do. And they've been doing that a lot. We got like all these stories, we've had great Nissa getting to show off her intelligence, Nissa getting to sort of have the odd um emotional beat or whatever. 
but we haven't really had a Nissa-driven story. Not really. We haven't had a good connection of Nissa with the other characters in a way that is memorable. Like, I mean, to your point, Nissa and Adric were friends before Nissa joined the crew, right? They clearly got along the best out of Adric and anybody else. Clearly Nissa was the one that he got along best with in the current setup. And for her to not have the chance to say goodbye to him is horrendous. Um, Because you totally know that had Nissa been there, the two of them together could have worked it out. Not a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think with Nissa... I, I love her. I love what we see from her. But we're seeing the same thing. And it's not even like, remember with Ian, it was like Ian being Ian, right? Mm-hmm. Ian is the dashing hero. He's whatever. Nissa kind of is getting into that, except Ian at least was shown being dashing and heroic in different ways, in different stories. Nissa is the same in every story. It's still great, but come on, give the woman something to do i do i did really like though like in the closing scene where initially she's the one to turn to tegan for comfort and then she then comforts tegan in in return i liked their dynamic there and i get why people ship them mm-hmm. um <laughs> i see it um but yeah i think that massively underutilized character and i'm curious now with adric gone Two super intelligent people, will the writing be better? Or is it just going to be the same thing as always where Nissa is the alternative info dump? We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. But then we have Tegan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. So this time around, Tegan doesn't drive the plot herself as much as we've seen mm-hmm. previously. But she's still a strong support within the story itself. Uh, now, we kind of see it off screen more so, or over off screen, but she's the one that goes after the doctor to try and talk him down off his temper tantrum stool. Um, but then she's she's there with Scott the whole time, and not as in a sort of um, what? damsel in distress or anything like that. No, she's part of the squad. Like, if anything, mm. she's Ripley in this story. Yeah. Yeah, she's like Ripley, she's Ripley of Aliens. Um, and, like, again, it's, she has no qualms about throwing herself um, into danger to save the others. Like, you know, she runs forward to get a Cyberman's weapon. She rushes forward to try and save the Doctor from being killed. And then she in turn defends the Doctor while he's trying to repair the thing. So it's like, while she may not have driven plot, she's a, it's just a good performance, you know? Yeah, I would agree. I think, like, Tegan, you know, she's the base level modern, you know, representation of the show. Um, I do agree with you. I I found it really interesting when reading through the trivia that like that 
Catherine Briggs is meant to be this sort of Ripley esque character, and obviously they're meaning Ripley from Alien mm-hmm. specifically. Um, whereas actually it's Tegan. Like there's several shots where you're like, "Oh, that's a fucking Ripley moment right there." Like particularly when she's off on her own. Um, and what I like about Tegan in general, and I, I think it's particularly obvious in this story, is that like she knows she's not a super genius. She can't help Nissa do what Nissa does. Mm. But she still wants to help. So give her a jumpsuit, give her a gun, and she'll go with you. Because she has to help somehow. She can't do what the fuck they're doing. So off off we go into the well beyond us it was. Um so I think that's really good. I think um again her dynamic with everyone is really well. Um I would have liked to have seen more with her and Adric. Just because I don't think we ever really fully got a baseline read on her and Adric's relationship. Bar his initial sort of shitty comments in the first, you know, or the second story. I think it was Forced Doom's Day where he's a bit shitty to her. But we never really got to see like their dynamic properly. And I would have liked to have seen more of that. Do you know, like, yeah, Tegan talked the doctor off his emotional ledge, but I would have liked to have seen her, like, standing up for him a bit yeah, more. because, like, while he's shitty to her again in Kinda, like, by the time the visitation comes around, she's a bit more kind of tolerant of him. Or, like, did they have a better rapport? Yeah, but like, I would have just liked to see, like, again, because she's looking at the world from a modern lens. Mm-hmm. And I would have liked to have, like, when she sees the doctor storming off and, like, oh, he wants to go home and I'm not going back there and I can't go back whatever. I would have liked to have seen her, because, like, obviously she comes from a similar space to Andrick in that instance. I would have liked to have seen her be like, hey, come on. He's a kid and he wants to go home. Like, grow up. Do you know? Um, I would have liked to have seen more of like the way you and I are reading that situation. I would have liked to have seen Tegan calling it out because that's what a modern audience would think of that mm-hmm. situation. Do you know? Yeah. Um, but other than that, like she really is the the Ripley like stand in for the story. Um, and again, I'm curious as to what it's going to be like with just the three of them. I I don't know what it's going to be like. Yeah, I, I think after this, I'm kind of blank on a lot of stuff. So mm. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Mm. And then we have the boy genius himself. Yes, Adric. So just like your tenure on the show, this story was a bit of a roller coaster for you. Because you start off and, like, he does act like a petulant child at the start. No, he has valid reasons for some of his complaints. But the thing is is that and we said it, he acted like a he's acted like a prick to Tegan almost since day dot. Or take well like post regeneration he acted like a prick to her. And he's also getting a bit high handed with Nissa. And kind of snapping back at the doctor and all this kind of stuff and no one just kind of sat him down and asked what's going on so that was where like, I think like that was where this story kind of went okay 
you you have been acting like an asshole, but now was the time for someone to ask why. It has gotten a bit ridiculous at this stage. And and I think as well, that's another reason why he's acting all petulant is because as he pointed out, the doctor never makes time for him. He never has an opportunity to for someone to sit him down and so he can explain himself. Um but as it goes on, like he, he actually does a really good job of calling out the doctor's hypocrisy about stuff, you know? Like and kind of saying like your promises really aren't worth much. Um and it's okay for you to you know, say and make mistakes, but if anyone else does it, like, you know, you're under like a fucking ton of bricks. And it's kind of like he shows his level of maturity as the story goes on. And I like the um, one thing I liked about T, his thing, his relationship with Tegan in the story is that it has now gone from doctor look after Tegan she's you know useless or she can't look after herself it's like no please keep her safe mm. it's it's gotten more protective as opposed to uh, she's a just a fucking hindrance type shit you know um and so yeah it's no longer as I said I had it here like he's no longer kind of a chauvinist towards her I liked how he like kind of had his moment to shine uh, like you, you could see him kind of taking command, but again, in a like, he wasn't high handed in it. It kind of reminded me of when he was on Legopolis helping out the, um, the I was going to say the controller, but the the fucking the con the controller, mm. uh, kind of giving guidance and um, trying to resolve the issues, things like that. And his death is. His death is a tragedy, not not just because look he died, but it's like the way in which he died because he died trying to save the world, completely unaware of the fact that if he had actually succeeded, he would have irreparably changed human history. Mm. And it's like for the the way of the for in order for humanity to get to where it was, and for even like. Tegan's existence as we know it, Adric has to die. Yeah, uh, well, if I say Adric has to die, Adric has to fail. Yeah, sorry, yeah, exactly. Sorry, that's Adric has to fail. I mean, Adric could have lived if he just stayed on the escape pod with the rest of them. Yeah. Um, but Adric has to fail. Um, um, what I will say is Matthew Waterhouse's performance in that final sequence, great. That was fantastic. Yeah. I, the whole thing with Adric at the beginning, I I don't see it as him being petulant or whatever. I see it as him being upset. And you made the valid point that, like, no one's ever asked him why he's acting out. Do you know? Like, there was the whole thing with the machine, Um, you know, like, the doctor reading him the right act for getting, you know, using the machine and was it in Kinda or whatever. Um, and he didn't know how to use it properly. And he keeps rushing in and trying to help and, you know, moving ahead and doing things when, you know, you know, we didn't need you to do that or there was no need to do that or whatever. And it's like, maybe ask him why, because it's very obvious why. 
was like, he wants your attention. Like, the doctor, or Adric had Canine, Romana, and the doctor. Where essentially they were the ones taking care of him. Because they didn't need anyone to take care of them. They were taking care of him. And then they left eSpace, and it was the doctor and Adric. And he was the protege. He, the doctor was constantly teaching him new things. They were going on adventures. It was great. And we saw how much Adric grew um, when the doctor, like, even if you go to, like, Legopolis, like, the way he was, like, at the start of that story and stuff like that. And then, like I said, this man that he looks to as, like, a father figure or whatever goes through a physical change and also an emotional and mental change. And suddenly, there's these two other people on the TARDIS with them. I was like, oh, okay, fine. It's getting a bit crowded. Who, so much time I spent trying to get Teague at home. And, you know, there's no need for the Doctor to show Adric how to do something. Because Nyssa already knows how to do it. And from his perspective, where does he fit into that? Do you know, like, anytime he tries to help, he's told that he's being a hindrance. Or that he, you know, did something stupid or whatever. And it's like, I kind of get where he's coming from. Where he's like, you never spend time with me anymore. Do you know, like, when it was Tom's doctor, he presented himself as the mentor. Mm. What has Adric learned from the fifth doctor? Fuck all. Because the fifth doctor doesn't spend any time with him. Do you know? He consistently leaves Nyssa in charge. Supposed to leaving Adric in charge. Nyssa is shown how to work things. And Adric is being left by the sidelines. So I completely understand him being upset. And like you said, that was the prime opportunity for someone to sit him down and go, why do you suddenly want to go home? What's going on with you? And I think it would have been revolutionary for the you know, teenagers in science fiction genre had someone done that. Do you know? Mm. But they didn't. Um, like, Nissan and Tegan do stand up for him a bit, but not in the way that he really needed. I think for the rest of the story, um, for most of it, he's fine. You know, obviously he's trying to prove his point. But for most of episode one, he was just in the TARDIS looking at the camera going, oh, look. Mm. Oh, where'd they go? No, no, I was like, okay. Um, I do think, though, like, in the latter half of the story, though, we do see the full brunt of who Adric has become. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Is it like he is willing to stand up in the face of fire? Um, like the fact that he was like, I'll be fine. Leave me here. I'll be fine. It's grand. And you can tell he has an idea percolating in his head. And he's like, oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. They still shouldn't have left him there. He's fucking 16 years old. But, you know, he is like, no, I got this. Or whatever. Um, I love how um, Scott and uh, Briggs and Berger were all trying to get him. Mm-hmm. Like, all trying to protect him. And he's just like, no, I can, I can protect you. Um I do think it's funny that like his last thought is I'll never know if I was right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, it's just such an adric it's such an adric thing. 
Um, what I wanted to say though is that there was so because I often use the Doctor Who fan wiki page um, as a resource when I'm doing trivia and stuff. Mm-hmm. And usually it's factual. Sometimes there's a little bit of inference, but usually it's factual information, whatever. For this story, there was a statement which I would deem to be an inference. I really questioned the person who put it in there. And it was written as this. Killing off Adric makes some sense story-wise. The Doctor would never purposefully return to eSpace, so that would leave Adric indefinitely stuck on the TARDIS. Given Adric doesn't have a place in end space to call home like the rest of the companions. Nissa did have a home, but it was destroyed. I'm like, that's a, re- a really short-sighted way of looking at this. Adric could have found a home anywhere had someone mm-hmm. actually tried to help him. Originally, the fourth doctor was taking him to Gallifrey. Mm-hmm. Adric could have found a home on Gallifrey if the doctor ever thought about what does Adric need to grow. Um... You know, I said the doctor would never purposefully return to E space. Okay, but like, could he find a way for Adric to get there? Like, just because the doctor never wants to go back there doesn't mean that Adric should be forbidden from going home. Like, if you take him to Gallifrey, I'm sure they'll find a way to get him mm-hmm. back there. So that's a, that's a sentiment that like it was written on the, the wiki, and I was like, that's that's not a fact. That's not someone's no, opinion. There's... Multiple ways. It's an opinion that. I disagree with. Do you know, like Victoria found a home that was not her own. Do you know? Um, and if anything, Adric and Nissa are in exactly the same position. Adric has a home that he physically can't get to, and Nissa has a home that physically doesn't exist anymore. Why is he? Why is it suddenly it makes sense for Adric to die? Story wise. When the same person is like, and we expect Nissa to die next because she's fucking nowhere to go either. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that makes no sense. Like, there's plenty of ways that they could have written Adric out. Like, he could have <clears throat> gotten him like a clerical job or something like that in on in the Citadel on Gallifrey. He could have been introduced to a brand new society that he could become a part of. He could try and recreate Legopolis because he understands block transfer computation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. So, I mean, is it kudos to Matthew Waterhouse? I think the performance at the end was very good. Um, I think, like, in the story itself, him dying is obviously very effective or whatever. Um, but this idea of, you know, he had to die or it makes sense that he was going to, they were going to kill him off because what else are they going to do? I'm like, that's just short-sighted. <laughs> there was plenty of other things that they could do. Um, but yeah. So then we have our story-based prominent characters. I know it's the story-based companions, but they're not story-based companions. They're prominent characters of Scott, Kyle, Briggs, and Berger. Do you want to do them in that order, or do you have a, do you have a preference? Um, I would go like on order of how much I've got to say about people. So I would go mm-hmm. Kyle, Berger, then Scott and Briggs, I think. Mm. Okay. Uh, so what Kyle, do you think of Kyle? I don't really have a whole lot to say about her, to be honest. And I know like that I'm mm-hmm. the one that usually kind of puts into the character discussion point of view. But it's like 
she's there for handy exposition at the start in order to cast a bit of shade. You know, like she's there to help create the air of mystery because like uh, Scott and his second in command are like, do you think, do you believe her? And it's like, well, I don't know. It's kind of fucking dodgy. And then she's there as, I think, an emotional hook because mm-hmm. all the people that die in the story are their cannon fodder. They're soldiers or yeah. security guards or whatever. But she's the first non-military person that actually dies in the story that we actually see. And it's mm-hmm. she dies as a, as a result of trying to get involved in a fight. So, like, Teague, the very same thing could have happened to Teagan when she dashed forward to take that gun. Mm. And here we have Scott doing, or sorry, Kyle doing it, and she ends up just becoming the sacrificial lamb. And while, you know, we've talked about other characters and other stories that have, like, fulfilled that role and it's effective, I don't think it's as effective here because of how undeveloped or underdeveloped she was mm. yeah I can see that my, my thing with Kyle was like literally from the first scene with her I mean she's super fucking sussy mm-hmm. I was waiting like for the whole like first two episodes and actually even a bit into the third episode I was waiting for her to be revealed as a traitor because the way I don't know if it's the way the actor presented it or whatever. The way she carried herself was super fucking suspicious. Yeah, it's the way the actor kind of presents. But then again, as I said, the the writing is meant to be there because Scott and as I said, he picks up on like uh, something's not quite on the up and up here, you know. Yeah, but like, she's super saucy, and so I just kept waiting for her to be revealed as traitor to the point where when Ringway was revealed, I was like, oh holy shit. Um, <laughs> it's not her. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, mm. but yeah, I mean, she's a fine character. Um, I think, to be honest, I think the most interesting thing about her death is Nissa's reaction to it, who's mm-hmm. clearly traumatized. Yeah. Um, but other than that, yeah, I, she was there. I was suspicious of her for ages, and then she was just there. That was pretty much it um so then we have berger and Mm. she one thing that i will say that the story did very well was the revelation of who the traitor was i thought was done fantastic because Mm. we know that there's a traitor and then it's like your man uh, the says oh send someone down into the cargo hold and there you'll find your scapegoat the next 60 seconds it cuts to ringway sending a security team down it cuts to berger looking at them on the security camera and it cuts to briggs who has been all gung-ho about getting towards earth immediately sending down like more security personnel so i thought it did very well as to say actually it could actually be any one of the three Mm. yeah so i thought that did very well compared to robots of death where you know exactly who it is because of really bad fucking Chromacast. Uh, but Berger um, is very good red herring, I thought, for the traitor role. And it was cool seeing her help the Doctor because 
she switched sides to his point of view from a from the rational point of view, you know? Mm. Like, Captain, come on, you've got to admit that something's not quite on the up and up here. Maybe we should listen. And then she ends up being held to him. And it's not just because she's an extra pair of hands. It's because she's actually quite intelligent. Yeah. He She helps him tap into the stability field for the, the antimatter. Um, she also helps Adric trying to overcome the navigational control component. So I really do appreciate it when female supporting cast are, and like they're, they're are in like, like on ship roles and stuff like that, when you actually get to see them utilize their intelligence. I think that's really mm. cool. Yeah, I'd agree. I think Berto is actually a really interesting character. I actually wanted to see more of her. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, after the sort of Starship Troopers cannon fodder that we had um, of Scott's platoon or whatever. Yeah. Um, to, to see Berger, I, I really wanted to see more of her. Um, and I'll get to this more in my overall, but the fact that, like, she's not exactly, like, she's an older woman. Um, I say older, like, as in, like, older than we would normally see represented when we have women in the show like this. Usually mm-hmm. a woman on a ship would be, like, an actress in, like, her 30s or something. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this lady is clearly, I'd say, 50s, maybe? Late maybe 40s or 50s? Maybe, yeah, maybe 40s. Um, but I love that she is the most competent person on that mm. ship. Yeah. Um, but she's not afraid to call people out. You know, she calls out Briggs when she needs to. She tries to advise Ringway from her perspective on how to not get up Briggs's nose or whatever. Um, I think she would have been a very effective leader. Um, I love the way, like I said, I love the way she worked with Adric. Um, and again, the fact that like she was like, you know, she's the one that gets him to come away. Really, like you're like, you know, I know that you've got Scott saying it's an order or whatever, but like, she doesn't try to order him or whatever. She just she just cares about him. Do you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, which is really quite sweet. Um. And I sort of imagine, like, of the three of them that were then in the escape pod, I sort of imagine that knowing what's going to happen to him probably hit her the worst. Yeah. Because, like, and we'll get to Briggs in a second, like, but, like, I don't think Briggs really gave a sh- shit about anybody. Um, um, I don't know. I, I think I disagree with that. Uh, but we can talk more about that when we get on to Briggs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I thought I thought she was a really interesting character. And just to your point on like you know the representation, and I was going to say this in my overall, but I'll say it now. I do think this story had very good female representation for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, women were well represented in Scott's group. They were leaders. They were you know senior um, officers, etc. Although that like that one senior officer at the start, um, like his his right hand or whatever, mm-hmm. like her helmet was way too big for her head. Yeah. Poor Petal, like if anyone ever like clocked her in the head, her head would be ringing. Like, um, but there was very good representation across the board. I think, um, of women and, and Berger is a really good uh, representation of that. Yeah. Um, and then we have Scott. Yes, 
and keeping with our aliens analogy, he um, he's definitely more of a Hicks than he is a Gorman. Yes. Yeah. You got the sense he was going to be a bit of a Gorman at the beginning. Yes, absolutely, because he came across as like this very narrow-sighted military um, mm. boor, essentially, you know? And so, you know, it's like, to the doctor, like, you're like, well, you're here, it's got to be you. Fuck, you know, fuck circumstances, fuck evidence, like, it's got to be you. Mm. But as it goes on, like, what is it, yeah, episode two, the doctor's like going, oh, I'm going to find the, um, the source of this your signal and he's like well it's my responsibility to protect earth so i'm going with you and then to me anyway his responsibility then included the protection of the tardis crew Hmm. like whatever about you know his duty to keep you know keep earth safe the doctor adric tegan and nissa all became his responsibility as well and I like that he was doing whatever he could to make sure that they were all safe. Um, I really enjoyed his interactions with Tegan. Like, he didn't treat her as a hindrance. He treated her as one of his squad, essentially, when she volunteered to come along. Um, And I did like his interactions with Adric at the end, because, you know, as we said, the whole thing, you know, and that's an order. He didn't say it... It it was it was kind but firm at the same time, you know. Yeah, there was a respect there. It wasn't yeah. just someone spouting it. There was a respect there. Sort of. Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing that I would have loved to have seen is actually rather than just the voiceover of Scott saying that Adric got left behind, I would have loved mm-hmm. a cut away to Scott saying it to the doctor. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually. I'm going to take back what I said about. Berger, I think that was more about Briggs than, than it was about Scott. Actually, what I said about Berger being the one who who felt Adric's death the most. Yeah, um, I'm going to take back. I think I had Ber- I think I had Briggs in the brain. Um, well, I think like they, and that's why I kind of disagree with you about Briggs as well because I think all of them felt it in some capacity. Yeah, I'll explain my thoughts on Briggs in a second though. On why I said yeah. that way, but I am going to take back including Scott in that in that. Um. I agree with you. I think Scott, <laughs> somewhere down the line, I think Scott has a bit of a Lethbridge Stewart in him. Yeah. Um, oh. Not, and it's not just because of the mustache. Um, no, no. Um, but there definitely is a sense of the Lethbridge Stewart in him, in the sense that, like, you know, he is a bit quick to react, quick to judge, but there is duty, there's a duty of care. Um and, and the reason why I took back what I said is that like I was just thinking about it again and like you said, like when he was telling the doctor that Adric was left behind, you know he's the type of guy who has a no man left behind mentality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And like Adric was in the pod with them. Do you know? And then he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so I I do think that um I was taking back a bit what I was saying a while ago. I think I was getting a bit caught up in it, but um I think it would hit. I think it hit him very differently mm-hmm. to how it would hit Berger. Yeah, because I think in the way that he said to Adric, "That's an order," 
like I said, it wasn't a scream. It wasn't a, you know, to, to go back to the Wesley Cross analogy, it wasn't a shut up Wesley. Yeah. Type of thing. Um, it was, you know, I'm treating you like an adult. Yeah. And giving you an order because it's my duty to protect people. Um, and, you know, that makes him one of his platoon, um, not just a, not just a civilian, like he's, yeah. you're part of the group and, and you got left behind. Um, I do like his dynamic with um, Tegan. I think that was really good. Um, I I don't know why. I think it's because I've been rereading um, the Lincoln Rhyme series, Lincoln Rhyme series by Jeffrey Dave Redmond. I did get a bit of a sort of like um, sacks, and um, so in if you've never read the link the Lincoln Rhyme books by Jeffrey Dever, um, it's ba- it's what the film The Bone Collector was based on, and the female cop in in that in that series Amelia Sachs, she you know she works with Lincoln Rhyme, she you know is a, a she runs crime scenes, pick up evidence, whatever. But she also has a bit of an adre- she's a bit of an adrenaline junkie, and so she often puts herself on the takedown team. Mm. Like she's crime scene, she's meant to go at the end, but like you know, she wants to be the first one in the door and whatever. Um, but she has a really good rapport with the head of um the emergency services unit, um, Bo Howman in the series, and I did sort of get this sense of Saxon Howman with. Tegan and Scott, and this, a lot of people listening to this may not get that reference, but if you ever have read a Jeffrey Deaver book, I think you'll get it. Is home is Homan in the the movie? Because I've seen the book. No, because he didn't come in until um, I don't think he was in. I'm trying to remember. I don't think he was in. He wasn't in the movie anyway. Definitely not. Um, I can't remember if he was in the Bone Collector book or if he came in in the next book, but. Um, Basically, he's the head of, like, basically, um, you know, the New York's version of a SWAT team, okay. you know, basically. And so he, he lets Sax be on the entry team, and she gets to take point, and, like, she's treated as one of the group and stuff. Um, I sort of see that, like, Scott kind of the same thing with Tegan, um, <laughs> which yeah, is good. I... The thing that I, I, I didn't get full confirmation on, what the fuck happened to the three of them? Um, I'm going to presume that that would be picked up in the next story. It fucking better be, because... Because, correct me if I'm wrong, the freighter was already going back in time. Yeah. So they ejected. They clearly didn't go down to Earth. No. Well, maybe they did. Maybe they did, but which gets the fucked. And I'm like... I, I, I literally just thought about it. I was like... No, Does the I, next episode pick up straight away? Is the Doctor and them going to pick them up? Because I'm trying to actually remember, and I think otherwise those three fuckers are floating around in the sky pod forever. <laughs> we'll repopulate human society. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know I have a feeling that they probably. Um, oh Christ! Pick them up and dr- drop them back to their own fucking time again. 
It'd yeah. have to, because otherwise that's a massive fuck you to them. Yeah, it's like, he escaped, hurrah. Bye. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're going to Briggs. Uh, just one second. Oh yeah, I, think I just went onto their wiki page and it just says they were presumably dropped back to their own time. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, they're still floating. Yeah. Okay then. Um, uh, Briggs, yes, stop that man from pissing on the edge. Um, she is a weird hodgepodge of characters, and again, because they tried to base her off, they tried to base the character off Ripley from Alien. She actually ends up being more like a combination of Ripley, Parker, and Dallas, mm. because of this whole thing of like the monetary obsession, like I'm not going to lose my bonus, all this type of shit. And then it's like, no, we're just going to go straight to beeline for our, you know, like, fuck all this exploratory and investigation type shit. And then at the end, it's like, she kind of stands to when she realizes that things are bad. And it's, I don't think it's until she actually realizes that the cargo is essentially Cybermen, just how wrong she's been. And she is then all on board with trying to rectify the mistakes of her past. Mm. Um, And she, the reason I disagreed with you about the thing with Adric is that she stops calling him boy and refers to him as Adric. And I know, I don't think she probably has, I wouldn't say like that she, would feel as impacted by his death as Berger or Scott, who knew him longer. But I can imagine her kind of sitting down, you know, collapsing into a seat in the thing and just thinking, that poor boy, you know? Yeah, like, my thing with Briggs, right, is... Because going back to the baseline, right, Ripley in Alien is a very interesting character. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she's a badass, she's second in command, but she's by the book. She's very by the book. Technically, she's she's third in command, I think, because I think Ash is second officer. Ash and Fuss. Sorry. Um, Not not, not, not Uh, Ash, Kane. Kane. Is Kane second in command? I think so, because... I think maybe maybe it's because... because she was left in charge of the ship and they went out, I assumed. She yeah, because, because she said when Dallas or Kane are off the ship, I'm in command. Oh, no, 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 true. Fair point. Okay. Anyway, she is in a command position. But she's very by the book. Um, To the point where for a lot, for a lot of the film, up until the um, chest pressure sequence, she has a bit of a stick up her ass. Mm-hmm. Um... And then obviously everything goes to shit. And then she's a badass and she's amazing. Um, Briggs, though. A, I don't think we've said this in a while. That was terrible casting. No offense to your one. Yeah. She did not work either as a Ripley-inspired character or just in the character that she was given. She clearly was uncomfortable in the role. And that was very obvious. But, like, Briggs being focused on the profit, do you know, 
like I I didn't really see the Ripley component there anywhere other than the woman in charge of a ship that has a portion share of whatever like they're carrying or whatever um because like Ripley would never have continued to earth at all you know she could like she just wouldn't have do you know she would have tried to blow the ship she would have done whatever with the idea of I'll go to earth and they'll sort it like it's like it's so like Briggs for most of this is laid back and casual to the point where like I agree with Ringway she fucking does my knot as a star spot but also she is so self-centered mm-hmm. do you know it's about I do my job we finish this up I get my bonus and the reason why I made the comment I made about her not being as affected or even affected at all by Edric's death. Again, I think it's perhaps overly bitchy about implying she wouldn't be affected at all. Because I agree with you. Like, she does go from calling him boy to calling him lad. You know, come on, lad, or whatever. Hmm. She's the first to get in the fucking escape pod. Yeah. (laughs) She runs over on her own and gets in the escape pod. And at that point, I was like, hmm, no. Just no. Ellen Ripley, you are not. Ripley went back for the fucking cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just after, like, at that moment, I was like, no. Um, Do I think Adric's death was her fault? No, of course it wasn't. No. However, it very easily could have been. Because she did not, once she stepped in there and she realized that he wasn't coming, like, Scott walked back over to him. Mm-hmm. Berger was trying to pull away. She just stood in the escape pod and she had no intention of fucking leaving it. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the only person she really cares about is herself. Yeah. And yeah, once she realized she was carting 16,000 Cybermen back to Earth, she was like, oh shit, I can't take them back to Earth. But like, at that point, what else could she do but go along with everyone else? Do you know what I mean? Because she's not a fucking moron. Um, but everything she did, she did for her own benefit. Like, I can actually see, like, the other two trying to get Adric to come away and, the you know, the countdown is going or whatever and the door to the escape pod is starting to close and she just fucks off with them. Any captain who gets in the escape pod first when there's a 16-year-old trying to save the ship? No. I, I, actually, I didn't think that she was the first one into the escape pod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the love of God, ma'am, there are two seats. I like to put my feet up. <laughs> so Cool, and then we're on to our villains. So we have hmm. Ringway, and then we have the Cybermen themselves. So, Ringway is... As I said, I liked the little trifecta he was a part of as was he is he the bad guy or is he the traitor? Is he not the traitor? Oh wait, he's the traitor. And after that, he becomes less interesting because his motivation is never explained. 
I agree. I I found him really interesting at the start because he sort of came across as like the young officer who's trying to. Like, he's more Ripley mm-hmm. than Briggs is. Yep. And then we're like, what did it take for you to betray your people? And Doctor said, well, clearly it wasn't gold, as was the case in Revenge of the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. But we never find out what the fuck it was. Oh, and also obligatory, fuck that guy from Revenge yeah. of the Cybermen. Yes. But we never find out what it was. Ever. I was like, was it that he loves order and structure so much he wanted to be a Cyberman? Is that the reason why? We don't fucking know. Nope, we do not. So he was very interesting up until the moment he was revealed to be the traitor and then I went downhill. Yeah. Um, Cyberman? Yes. I think that the more the Cybermen get upgraded the less impressive they look to me. Yes. And I know that this is only the second story that we had with them in color, but I'm actually starting to see the prop nature of their makeup more so than I ever did before. Yeah. The inclusion of the human mouth, Mm -hmm. I think was unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it shows that the rest of it like, because I always envisioned that, like, going from Tenth Planet to this, I assumed that that face casing was, like, fused to their fucking face. Yeah. Whereas here, you can tell it's clearly a helmet. So, I always, the way I always saw was that the eyes can see. But here, it's like, I mean, like if I held my glasses, like, a half an inch away from my face, mm. I wouldn't be fucking able to see anything. The the biggest problem with it was is that, and I was thinking about it, and <clears throat> if you go back to the original Cybermen, and it's like that sort of mesh glove type thing, they would open their mouths, but the dialogue that was coming out of it didn't match the mouth movements mm. because of... Be, because of the animatronic nature, right? Like the cyberized nature of their voice boxes. You could have done something similar here where you could have had, you know, like the see-through section and you mm. could have seen the actual human chin going, but don't sink, but don't actually have the actor speaking. Do what they did yeah. before. Uh, desync the dialogue because then you get an actual more robotic or cyberized feel to the whole thing. Yeah, like if you think back to 10th Planet... What's the about? Maybe it was Moonbase. When you decide when to take off his glove and you see the human hand. I think that's 10 Planet because in Moonbase they had the weird pincer hands. Oh yeah, so it's 10 Planet. Where you see him take off the glove and he has the human hand. I think that was way more effective at showing that these people were once human mm-hmm. or human-esque than being able to see half their face. Yeah. And... The other big issue that I have with them is that there's actually so much emotion in their voices. Yeah. 
And it's like, no, the whole point of it is that they're devoid of emotion. Like, Daleks, they have emotion. And all their emotions are rage and and anger and rage. And so you can get, like, that's perfectly fine for them to have inflections. But for the Cybermen, we've been told the whole time is that they are devoid of emotion because all they rely on is logic. Why are you giving them emotional tonality in their voices? I mean, like, at the end, when that Cyberman shoots the thing and laughs, it's fucking creepy. But a Cyberman wouldn't laugh. No. No, like the thing that I that was actually the, the was actually the main thing I wrote down was they're very emotional, which is particularly striking when they include the um, archive footage of Doc Bill saying that they're emotionless. Yeah. Like, well, you could have picked any other clip of the first Doctor talking to the Cyberman, and you picked the one where he's egging them on about their emotions. Mm-hmm while they're being very emotional but also the way they spoke to each other like the cyber leader was clearly driven by emotion his subordinate was also like anxious as fuck um like there was no logic in the subordinate do you know what i mean um which i think of all of the ones even revenge of the cybermen which was not great i think these are my least favorite cybermen that we've seen yeah no they they are because, as I said, this is the first time I've I see the prop. Yeah, like my for me, my immersion is broken because of the design choice. And again, I'm not going to blame the actor. Because I'm going to blame the direction. Yeah, yeah. They they weren't Cybermen. No. Also, I think there was a bit more. Well, I, I might level a small bit of blame at the actors. They're, they were very stage performing. Yeah. Although there wasn't enough modulation on their voices. Yeah. They were too, they sounded too human. Even just, mm. even if you had them be emotionless, they still sounded too human. It almost got to the extent where they sounded like Tom Hardy as Bane. Yeah, because and what I find interesting is that, and I don't know if, you, if I picked up on this wrong, we're let, the way it's presented is almost as if this cyber leader has been the same cyber leader that the Doctor saw before. Because yeah, he can say that I, I, he recognizes the TARDIS. And, yeah. and I'm like, unless this particular cyber leader is obsessed with the Doctor and has gone through, like, the person that defeated everyone. Then it's like, but again, like the timeline for the Cybermen is all weirdly fucking all over the place, you know? Yeah. It's just, it, it just, it just struck me as really, really odd. Um, and like, I was even trying to remember in like Earth's timeline, was Arkan space before Revenge of the Cybermen, in the sense that was Space Station Nerva adapted to be Nerva Beacon? Because if that's the case, then this cyber leader is too young to remember anybody. 
yeah, no, Ar- Ar- uh, Revenge of the Cybermen takes place after Earth has been recolonized. Yeah, so in that case, this cyber leader is too young to remember anything. Or is it after it's recolonized? Fuck, I have to take a look. Sorry. I, I think it is, because I think they repurpose Space Station Nerva. They, oh, no, they do, but... Or... Hang on. Um, actually, another thing is... Regardless, I still think that he's too young. Like, as a cyber leader, he's too yeah, young to we'll remember it, though. Yeah, so they, they arrive back at a later point in time because it's now uh, operating as an orbital beacon. Yeah. So how the fuck does this cyber leader know anything about what happened in Revenge of the Cybermen? Yeah, it's fucking weird. Like, um, But another thing as well, the Cybermen's plan is kind of fucking dumb because yeah, it is. the okay, there is a conference on Earth to write into action a military alliance to defeat the Cybermen. All that's going to be there is dignitaries for the other planets. And Earth's surface-based defense forces, okay? Mm. You slam the ship into it. You're just getting rid of Earth's surface-based defense forces and those dignitaries. If if anything, you're solidifying the need for the military alliance between all these planets. It would have been better for the Earth freighter to always do like a fucking in the pale moonlight on it launch a war between the various different planets and you know by a rogue element of Earth that didn't fucking um, trust outsiders in the war against the Cybermen and have them fight all amongst themselves and then you pick off the winner or you pick up the yeah. scraps yeah I, it was a stupid plan mm-hmm. um, I think it's a poorly structured uh, story to be honest um <laughs> Anything else about them before we go widdly-woo and then have our overall? Um, no, except now I think we need to explain widdly-woo. <laughs> because we, that doesn't okay. appear on... Yeah. <laughs> so, fair point. Our lovely listeners, when you listen to the episode, between the different segments, there's like a tardis wheezing sound. Obviously, when me and Paddy are recording, we don't have that. We just record in one stretch. And so what we tend to do when we're both sort of finished and ready to go on to the next piece is <laughs> we, do, we tend we do, to sort of like do a weird recreation of the sound. But it's, well, like, it's it's actually, uh, we do the Wayne's World, let's do the Scooby-Doo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that, yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, so let's do the Widdly-Woos and then... We're going to the conclusion. Fair Why enough. do you make me explain my stupid shit? Because it's funny. <laughs> because you'll make me explain stupid shit at various points. True. So, we come to the overall section where we each 
give our final thoughts on the story and give it a score out of five. Before we do that, um, I did get it wrong. Revenge of the Cybermen chronologically comes before Bark in Space. What is it? Yeah. I thought they repurposed Nervo Beacon, which is why it looks really run down. No. So, according to the wiki page, um, it's in... Arkham Space is set in the about the thirtieth century, mm. whereas uh, Nerva is, or sorry, Arkham Space is set in the sixty-first. Say that again. Uh, it's set in the thirtieth century in Revenge of the Cybermen. Yeah, and it's set in the sixty-first century in Arkham Space. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Either way. This story yeah. is in the 26th century. Yep. So he's still a cyber baby, and I don't know how he knows the things he knows. Yep. I don't know. It's all witty-woo yeah. nonsense. Anyway, Paddy, what do you think of the story, and what's your score out of five, Malf? Alright. So, overall, between the jigs and the reels, and when all is said and done, I actually enjoyed the story. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I liked the mystery pacing for the first episode. It was very tense and atmospheric, and there was a good claustrophobic nature uh, to it. I also liked the claustrophobic nature of the Cybermen on the freighter, you know, and the mm-hmm. like just kind of just going up and down the cargo holds. And I thought those sequences where they were showing like advancing through the barricade and going to the bridge, thought they were all really well done. I think the the actual st- uh, what is it? The scene direction mm. was really good here. That was excellent. You know, and I thought me, the camera work was done really well as well. Um, in terms of a companion debt for Adric, I think it kind of takes top prize at this stage. As I, we don't see Sarah Kingdom's one where we interpret it based on the images that we have. Mm. But I think with Adric's one is just the whole scenario surrounding it. It it just kind of it's just a punch in the gut, you know. Mm. Um, and again, Matthew Waterhouse, I thought he gave a very good performance on his way out the door. Um, the supporting cast, I thought for the most part, did a really good job. Um, Scott and Berger, especially. I really enjoyed their their scenes, and even like the one that played Briggs, like she had some good moments. And I think even when she was like the despicable character, I thought she still kind of gave a good performance in that capacity. Mm. You know, um, there. That being said, like I did think some stuff was underdeveloped. Like Kyle, there was as you said, like you, she seemed a bit sus. But then that eventually they don't know where, and then she's just an unfortunate casualty. But because she's so underdeveloped, it's hard to kind of get the full impact of that. Um, I as we did have a good performance or a good outing from Tegan. Granted, no, she wasn't in the driver's seat for it, but she was there. But with Nissa, I wanted to see more, especially given what happened to Adric. I felt like she should have had been the opportunity to be on the bridge as well, and be him to say goodbye and I'll, like, I'll see you soon type thing mm. um, but again as I said that's kind of down to I feel a failing on the writers not being able to handle that big of a TARDIS crew mm. 
Um, and like the doctor himself, I'm not like, I don't think that this is a good doctor story because just how annoying he is in the first episode. And then he doesn't have a huge impact for me as the story goes on. He has like one or two good interactional moments, but other, over, or other than that, it's like, nah, it just kind of fails to connect. But that being said, the positives for me outweigh the negatives, so I'm giving this a four out of five. Okay, that's not bad. Not bad at all. Um, that brings your season average to two point seven nine. By the way. All right. So for me, there's a couple of things in the story that I liked. Um, it's one of the first thoughts I had was it's very cinematic. Mm. Um, which my understanding is that that was on purpose. This feels like you're watching a film. Yeah. Which is great. Um, the second thought I had was, oh, look, it's... Um, non 20 something women in space wearing leather vicky would love it mm-hmm. um <laughs> i think as a story it's interesting i think the mystery is interesting i think the traitor reveal is interesting um i think tegan has some good moments of representation Nissa does, but again, they're really early on and they don't get to, to stick around for long. And Adric's death. I think it's the most poignant in the sense that we've known him for longer. And I think for me, the emotional gut wrench of it isn't even the Doctor and Nissan Tegan having to watch the freighter um, crash, basically. Mm. It comes from knowing that Adric knows he's going to die. Yeah. This is a 16-year-old kid who's holding on to something. I don't know what he was holding it, in it's, his hand. It's, it's like a piece of rope. Yeah, I wonder if it was like part of his belt off his top or something. Possibly. Um... And dying alone. I was about He's to say it's alone. a very. I was about to say it's almost like a rogue one ending, except for the fact that Jin and Cassian weren't alone. <laughs> yeah, but but that's, that's the tragedy of it. Like not only yeah. is it like this young kid, but he dies alone. Um, and I think back to, I mean, if you think about it, our other companion deaths, were essentially all in one fucking storyline. Yeah. Um. I mean, Katarina's was horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Kingdoms, I Star Kingdoms will always for me be the the worst in the sense of like trying to imagine myself going through it. Mm-hmm. I think it's because we didn't actually get to see it. <laughs> Do you know that? Like my, my imagination, yeah, your has mind, filled in. yeah, plays with us, yeah. And then, as always, justice for Brad. Yeah. Um, but I think, in terms of like an emotional connection, I'd say this one probably resonated a lot more with fans. Um, and I'm really curious to see the fallout of it next week. 
um, particularly for Nissa and Tegan, because uh, at the moment the doctor couldn't give a shit um, what he thinks about anything. Um, which leads me to the negative sides of it, which are I think the Cyberman's plan made no sense. I I didn't like Briggs. I thought she was really badly cast, and I didn't connect with her at all as a character. And I thought the Doctor was an asshole. Um, so for me, like, there were moments where it was a four. Mm-hmm. There were moments where it was a four point five. To be honest. Yeah. No. But I would say those were more, there were scenes for me that were a four and there were scenes that were a four point five. Mm. Um again, like Adric's death scene four point five. Shows about. But overall I'm going to give it a three point five. Okay. Because for me the negatives do not outweigh the positives enough for it to cross over that four threshold. Um, but there was a lot of good in it that doing below 3.5 seems like I'm doing a disservice. Mm-hmm. So 3.5 is the happy, the happy medium there for me. So this um, is what, this is what those ones like that you probably skim watch for your, for your scenes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Um, I'd skim watch it. I'd, um, you know, I'm not rushing out to buy the novelization tomorrow. Yeah. So, um, and that brings my average for the season to two point nine two. So I'm still slightly higher than you on average. Mm. Um, but overall for the season, we're still riding at two point eight five. So it is still very low, and we only have one story left to go. So it's going to be interesting to see if this season will rate higher than last season or season 17 are we going to get back up over the three mark um because the last three seasons have all been below a three on average for the two of us so i'm curious to see if next week with fewer characters to worry about if they can you know bring that quality back up so that the season as a whole ends on a three or higher Mm mm-hmm um, and because I'm curious now, I'm going to do a little bit of mathematical jiggery pokery. Yeah, we'd have to both give it a four, or like the average between the two of us would have to be a four for the overall average to go past three next week. And even if you gave it a four, your personal average wouldn't exceed three. You'd have to give it four point two five or higher. So a lot of pressure on time flight. We shall mm. see. But actually, I misspoke because that's not going to be next week, is it? No, next week we have our rambling for Adric. Yes, we do. Mm. Where we will look back at Adric's character and we will talk about his highlights and his lowlights and his best and worst episodes. Which, given how long it's taken us to get through Adric's tenure on the show because of personal life and Christmas and everything else. I'm going to have to go back and listen to our Adric segments, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but that is next week, Trisha's problem. For now, I'd say we leave it there. Um, love to hear everyone else's thoughts on this and your thoughts on Adric before we discuss them next week. Paddy mentioned the socials at the top of the show, so you can reach us there. And yeah, 
we will talk to you next time. Till then. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.